In our last episode, we looked at why homicide investigations go cold. A number of factors can stall a case. But our question is, why did Richard Adderson's case go cold? Throughout the course of the investigation into his murder, multiple factors may have impeded the police investigation, and Richard's case stalled rather quickly and curiously, given the wealth of information the police had and the publicity his case received. To begin with, Richard demonstrated an unimaginable sense of strength and mental fortitude as he was able to calmly and clearly relay critical information to the 911 operator, despite being mortally wounded at the time. He spoke with that operator for nine minutes and provided a description of his killer, his vehicle, and the incident itself. That would be Richard's last phone call. He never did get the chance to speak with his wife, with his son, or with his daughters. He was rushed to St. Luke's Hospital in Newburgh and died shortly thereafter. From the outskirts of New York City, Slim Turkey is pseudonymously hosted by Lee Purchase, with the occasional cluck from the Yonkers love chicken himself, Mr. Slim Turkey. Now, I realize I've said this before, but I'll repeat myself. Neither the nine-minute 911 call nor its transcript has ever been released in its entirety to the public. Now, 22 years later. But why? That's the question we ask. One argument may be that the audio recording is just far too sensitive and graphic, especially for the Adderson family. So release the transcript instead. Imagine having only moments to live. How much composure do you think you'd have? I realize it's impossible to say, but according to the New York State Police, Richard Adderson was composed and clear. In fact, the snippets of that emergency call that have been made public confirm that he was strong and determined, and all the more reason his case deserves justice. Here's another reminder. It took 14 months after the investigation commenced in 1997 for New York State investigators to disclose that Adderson stated his killer had identified himself as a cop. Again, the police waited over a year to disclose that critical information. So what else was withheld from the public in that call that may have led to at least identifying a prime suspect? We'll never know until the full transcript is released. And one more factor. The publicity that the Adderson case received was above and beyond that of your average homicide. One might think that the attention should have driven the case towards a resolution and eventual conviction. In past episodes, we covered the fact that the case received over a dozen news articles in Manchester, New Hampshire alone, thanks in large part to Sissy Taylor's dogged reporting. Additionally, America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries also featured the Adderson case, giving it major national exposure. Given the information available to police and the publicity that the case received, I've always been surprised that the Adderson case stalled out as quickly as it did. Here's a quick recap of the five major reasons why it stalled. Number one, homicides by guns are more difficult to solve. 
Many criminologists attribute the lack of success in murder investigations to the changes in the nature of violent crimes, and specifically deaths caused by guns. Number two, stranger-on-stranger crimes are amongst the toughest to solve. Police have long theorized that the shooting was fueled by a road rage incident. And when you listen to the 911 call, Richard isn't describing someone he knows or at least recognizes. In fact, Richard's statement in the 911 call that his killer wore glasses would strongly suggest that he didn't know him. Think about it. If you were robbed by a friend or even an acquaintance and the police asked you who did it, would you answer, John did it and he wore glasses? No, you probably wouldn't. The glasses are superfluous. Number three, witnesses or lack thereof. The incident occurred on the side of a highway at dusk. Witnesses would only describe a scene that involved two men engaged in a heated argument on the side of the road with few other details. Number four, physical evidence. Police were left with limited physical evidence beyond the damage to the driver's side of Richard's 1995 Volvo. Now add the possibility of one 40 caliber shell casing that may or may not have been left at the scene. We've never received a definitive answer from the New York State Police. And that's just another glaring example of the lack of consistent transparency in the case. Police revealed that Richard had been shot with a 40 caliber handgun, yet they won't disclose whether the shell casing was recovered from the scene. And speaking of the New York State Police, they come in at number five. I believe the New York State Police made several mistakes in the early stages of the investigation, which ultimately hampered the Addison case. Getting back to my point about their lack of transparency, investigators withheld critical information from the public and only released it sporadically, if at all. It wasn't until more than a year after the homicide that police revealed that Richard's killer had identified himself as a cop. And with each critical delay, investigators sacrificed the media spotlight, the public's full attention, and the community's awareness and vigilance. But the most glaring blunder may have been the New York State Police's arrogance in not involving the FBI in a homicide that crossed state lines. Had the FBI been involved? Would Richard Addison's killer be in prison today? And lastly, number six. The greatest impediment to the Adderson investigation has been the unwillingness on the part of those who know who shot Richard Adderson to come forward and cooperate with authorities. Someone, somewhere, knows who shot Richard Adderson on the side of I-84 and left him there to die. Someone knows the pain and suffering that his senseless death caused his family. Someone knows and has contemplated coming forward on multiple occasions, but never found the right moment to do so. Someone knows.
Sitting in Edinburgh town, Borough down, scurrilous, a thorough clown, for a brow, for a frown, hurry, let's so hurry round, for a found on the sound, nourished in the underground, thunder in the sun. In cold case homicides, practical investigative techniques, the most comprehensive textbook covering cold case investigations, written by R.H. Walton. Walton explains that although people want to come forward with information, they're often silenced because of the relationships they're in or out of fear of the perpetrator. Sometimes there's even fear or distrust of the police. And yet, as Walton states, with the passage of time comes changes in the dynamics in the way people think and in their personal relationships. They still may be reluctant to walk into a police station or to call the police. But in some cases, as Walton states, all it takes is for an investigator to take the initiative and knock on their door. The passage of time is both a friend and an enemy to investigators. But in terms of solving a cold case, here are some factors that today's detectives can exploit regarding the passage of time. Friendships that existed at the time of the crime may have ended and may have even become adversarial. Marriages or partnerships may have ended, sometimes on a sour note. You heard about fury and a woman scorned, haven't you? Hostile witnesses may no longer be hostile. In fact, these witnesses may have developed a better overall impression of the police. Witnesses or confidants may have found religion and now feel compelled to make amends for their past actions or inactions. Individuals mature and may have become reformed. Once a person marries and begins to raise their own family, priorities often change. Witnesses or confidants no longer fear the perpetrator. Over the course of time, they may have become stronger as the perpetrator becomes weaker. And in extreme cases, the perpetrator may have even died. And then there's guilt, burning guilt. One of the major thrusts of this episode is communicating that a cold case doesn't necessarily mean that it's a dead case. There is always hope, and each one of us can play our part in solving the crime. Sometimes it's the very people who no one imagines anything of who do the things that no one can imagine. But where to begin? A detective tasked with investigating a cold case must begin with the case file itself. One simply cannot rely on sitting behind a monitor of a computer to solve the case. Those cases, which span over 20 years or more, have left very few digital footprints, if any. And even the best detectives can't do it sitting down. In order to exploit the changes in relationships that may ultimately help to solve the Addison case, investigators need to get out into the world, into the old neighborhoods, and begin canvassing for people who may have lived there at the time of the crime. In the Adderson case, that includes Dutchess County, New York, and its surrounding areas, and the Manchester, New Hampshire area as well. I'd even check in with Derry, New Hampshire again, where the one-time prime suspect lives. Admittedly, it's a tedious, time-consuming process. Going door-to-door, speaking with one person at a time, But it's the gumshoe work that ultimately solves these cases. It's the only method proven to unearth the truth from persons hiding secrets 
or communities that are afraid to speak. Yet when I sat down with the current investigator assigned to Richard Addison's case, he admitted that his current caseload allowed him little more than a cursory review of the Addison case. For perspective, he's neither a homicide nor a cold case detective. But that's no knock on him. He catches everything, whether that be robberies, burglaries, assaults, or other cold cases that need to be investigated. He's a busy guy, overloaded and overworked. His number one priority isn't an unsolved case from 22 years ago. It's to clear one case and to move on to the next one. And I don't need to file another unsuccessful FOIL request with the New York State Police to verify that information. Like all good investigators with a supervisor to answer to, I'm sure he prioritizes his cases. Those cases that remain fresh and continue to generate leads are investigated far more diligently than those that have continued to produce dead ends. But I'll say it again, a cold case is not an unsolvable case. The continual advances in technology can assist in producing benefits toward discovering in cases. In fact, the greatest advance in criminal investigation since the fingerprint has been the application of DNA technology to the criminal justice process. These advances allow criminologists to identify DNA from hair, bone, skin, tissue, and smaller amounts of blood than ever. Additionally, forensic psychologists can either test DNA samples from family members to compare to an evidence sample, or unknown samples can be cross-referenced against DNA databases of known individuals in an effort to detect possible familial connections. Furthermore, the advances to CODIS, or the National DNA Database known as the Combined DNA Index System, have been exponential since its inception in 1990. Today, all 50 states participate in the program, which is comprised of two main DNA indices. There's the Forensic Index that contains DNA profiles developed from crime scene-related evidence, and there's another Convicted Offender Index containing DNA profiles from qualified convicted offenders, in many states those convicted of a felony. The FBI, which oversees the program, requires that all participating laboratories utilize the same analysis, which is the 13 specific STR loci, or short tandem repeats, of a fixed position on a chromosome. For more information, check out the link in our show notes to a great video that helped me understand the process. As Vernon J. Gebberth, a retired NYPD lieutenant commander, explains in the article, 30 Years of DNA Technology, quote, CODIS is structured as a three-tier hierarchy, a local DNA index system, a state DNA index system, and a national DNA index system. With this approach, each participating laboratory can manage its profiles in accordance with its legal requirements and, at the same time, compare its profiles electronically with other local and state laboratories in addition to the federal laboratory, end quote. According to Gebreth, by January 2017, the National DNA Index contained nearly 13 million offender profiles, over 2 million arrestee profiles, and more than 700,000 forensic casework profiles. 
And as of November 2016, CODIS had produced more than 350,000 DNA hits. So any evidence recovered and safeguarded by the New York State Police back in 1997 may one day benefit from the advances in technology realized either today or sometime in the future. The 40 caliber shell casing, the recovered bullet from Richard's body, any personal items that the killer may have left or dropped at the scene, traces of that green paint embedded in the driver's side door of Richard's Volvo, not to mention any fingerprints that may have been recovered from Richard's vehicle, specifically from the driver's side door which sustained the damage and may have been physically examined by the killer during that evening. But I suspect that the New York State Police's investigation fell short of gathering such evidence. And that remains one of their reasons for keeping this case under such tight wraps. We have Slim Turkey on the line this morning. Turkey, how you doing? I'm okay. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. This case still isn't solved, though, so let's fucking solve this thing. Or at least, like, help to solve. What are we talking about today? We are talking about cold cases and what time can do to help. The positive aspects of time. The positive aspects of time in relation to a cold case and how investigators and detectives can utilize that passage of time to their own benefit, right? Yeah, and how the New York State Police fucked up. Well, I thought you were going to be the positive one here. I am, but I'm bringing your angle, so let's talk about it. I mean, I've made no secret of the fact that I believe the New York State Police did not investigate this case to the best of their ability. I'll say it. I believe that they could have done so much more. And one of the questions that I've been dying to ask you, hypothetically speaking, had Richard Adderson been a police officer on the night of February 5th, 1997, and pulled over a green Jeep Cherokee for speeding, and during the course of his car stop, as he approached that car, the driver of that vehicle shot and killed Richard Adderson, the police officer, do you think that the New York State Police would have solved this case already. Oh, no right? doubt. So cop killers, there are still... Hold on, wait. You know, you just raised a good question. How many cold cases for cops are there? When you look at the percentages of cold cases that involve police officers being killed in the line of duty versus the regular citizen, citizen yeah. being killed. Yeah, the percentages of clearance rates in and line of duty deaths is far greater in terms of their clearance rates. I wholeheartedly agree. Junk turkey gobble. Wholeheartedly agree. 100% that this case would be solved already. And that's one of the biggest problems that I have. The pick and choose. That the New York State Police have this attitude. We're going to solve this. And you haven't done so in 22 years, but we're going to solve this. We're not going to elicit any outside help or it's not going to be solved at all. But getting back to the... The beginning of the episode was that time, well, which we didn't bring up guilt and time 
will play into him confessing and saying that he he is tired of living with this burden. And this is where time actually helps the cold case because he wants to get it off his chest because he's been living with it, right? Because unless he's a sociopath, he can't live with it anymore, right? So he needs to get it off his chest. He needs to like be rid of this burden that he murdered someone. He just wants to just say, I'm sorry, and I need somebody to know other than me that I, I, I made a mistake. R.H. Walton said that there were two factors that could help a cold case detective solve a crime after time. And one was the passage of time and the degradation or changes in relationships. The other one were the advances in technology. But I think when you look at this case and you see that there may not have been that much evidence left at the scene, then I think that you really have to focus in on the relationships. This guy told people, and he didn't tell one person, he didn't tell two people, he told several people in the course of the last 22 years. Those are the relationships that have to be cracked. Those are the relationships that you're counting on have changed over the course of time, whether they be his good friend who on a drunken night may have told that buddy of his that he got into this accident in New York and wound up shooting someone, or whether it be his wife who he confided in when he was fairly certain that he was going to get away with it. There could have been so many opportunities that he had to actually tell people of the truth. And even if he didn't tell the entire story, he probably dropped hints as to what had happened on that night, February 5th, 1997. And that was the whole point of starting this podcast to reach someone who finally will say, you know what? I'm not going to hold this secret anymore. I have to tell someone. It isn't that what you, this is back to what we said before. This is where time helps. With the passage of time, and there are investigators who think that the more and more time passes between the crime and their investigation where they are right now, that it seems bleak. R.H. Walton makes the case that it is not bleak. You can use the time. You could use the advances in technology to help solve the case. They should. I think they will. I hope for their sake that the New York State Police, at least someone from the New York State Police, is listening to this podcast and is embarrassed or is ashamed of the lack of time and effort they've put into this over the last 10 years or so and how it's just been passed around like a hot potato. Have some pride. You may even get a commendation. I was going to say that commendation. Show some gumption. All right, I think that's all for this cold case episode. Turkey time, paradigm, turkey time, standing like the weather is cold. I want to thank you all for listening to the show and joining the turkey and me on this case. Tune in next week for our bonus episode in which we'll be answering your specific questions regarding Richard's case. And remember, if you like the show, fatten up the turkey with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can always leave us a message at 
410-5528 or at clues at slimturkey.com. We'd love to hear from you. For now, I'm Lee Purchase, and this is Slim Turkey. Sunset strip. I don't wanna feel the emptiness. Gold marquees with stupid band names. I don't wanna go to Sunset Strip. I don't wanna go to Sunset Strip. I don't wanna feel the emptiness. Gold marquees with stupid band names. I don't wanna go to Sunset Strip.